0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This is part two of the Son of Sam series on this podcast. If you haven't listened to part one, which is episode 47, please stop now and listen to that episode before you listen to today's episode. If you would like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you would like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout out in a future podcast and a thank you message from the host. Finally, for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thank you so much. and Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Just to recap, in case it's been a little while since you listened to part one, in part one of the series we talked about what defines a serial killer. The FBI's most recent definition is an offender who commits two or more unlawful killings in separate events. This definition does fit a lot of killers, but we are focusing mainly on the characteristics and early life experiences of some of the more prolific murderers. This series is not only meant to introduce the listeners to those behaviors, characteristics, and experiences, but also point out the early life of David Berkowitz, known as the Son of Sam. His combinations of behavior and life experiences early on make him the perfect example of what conditions exist that might propel someone down the path to becoming a serial killer. In Part 1, we discussed Berkowitz's adoption, many witnessed traumatic experiences, and his aberrant behaviors, to include his almost 1,500 documented cases of fire starting. He tortured animals and his emotional stability, something he struggled with already, took a further blow when he realized his adoptive parents lied to him about the reasons he was given up for adoption. When we left off in Part 1, Berkowitz had just attacked two different women with a knife, sending one to the hospital for a week. Due to his inability to kill them with a knife, he had purchased a 44 caliber handgun and set his sights on committing murder. The first murder would occur on July 29, 1976. The first murder would occur on July 29, 1976, when two female friends, 18-year-old Donna Loria and 19-year-old Jody Valenti, were sitting outside Donna's house in the Pelham Bay area of the Bronx. Donna was an EMT, and Jody was a nurse, and they had just let loose that night by going to a nightclub and were talking about their evening. Around 1.10 a.m., Donna opened her door to exit the car and she noticed a man walking briskly towards her. She knew something wasn't right and said something to the effect of, Now, what is this? When David Berkowitz removed the 44 caliber handgun from a paper bag he was concealing in it. In the same motion, he crouched down, resting his elbows on one of his knees to steady his shot. Now remember, Berkowitz had military training, and this is something that you would see out of somebody with a military or law enforcement training. The most unstable stance for shooting is actually the stance you see most people shoot a handgun with, which is a standing stance with the arms extended. Uh, this is because between the weight of the gun and the fact that our strength in our arms is not based on them being fully extended straight out and holding a weighted object. So it's gonna produce the most amount of recoil when you fire that gun, and you're gonna have the most amount of sway while aiming the gun if it's held that way. So in the military and in law enforcement, you're taught to have a better base for your shooting. So in this case, Berkowitz actually crouches down and rests both of his elbows on one of his knees, and this is a tactic that's taught in, in handgun shooting in the military this is going to give him a a very steady shooting platform, which, which he uses to aim and pull the trigger. And this caused the bullet to strike Donna in the neck. And Jody, it's reported both ways, had gotten out of the car or was still sitting in the car. And Berkowitz aimed his gun at her and pulled the trigger. So I'm picturing she's in the driver's seat and this passenger side door opens. And so now Berkowitz has a shot on on both women. So whether she's sitting in the car or whether she's standing outside the car, I think he's shooting into the passenger compartment of the car. And as a result, she's hit in the leg, which makes me think possibly she had gotten out of the car and was standing so that where her head and chest used to be is now her legs, and that's why she got hit in the thigh. And Berkowitz is going to fire again, and this time he misses both women and it's it sounds like he at least shot two more times the weapon he's using is a five shot revolver and it's said in one of the the source materials that he continued to pull the trigger despite having fired all five bullets out of the revolver and when you do this in a revolver you're going to continue to cycle the cylinder you're going to keep moving it basically around the gun but there's just not going to be any bullets that the hammer is going to fall on to cause another shot because they've all been expended at this point. And this is something we talked about in the Valerie Ely case where in critical incidents, uh, officer-involved shootings, officers may shoot their entire magazine worth of ammo and not realize that they've done this. And this is uh, Berkowitz's first uh, shooting where he's that we know of that he's shooting at another person and it appears that his brain went into that pattern or he just continues to pull the trigger even though nothing is happening eventually he's gonna notice this and he's gonna stand up and walk away quickly from the scene and it said Jody laid on the horn and Donna's father came running out of the house and this is mainly due to the gunshots not not the sound of the horn uh, but he likely would have, you know, been throwing some either clothes on or whatever, getting ready as he's hearing these gunshots. And at this point, Berkowitz has walked away quickly. And he's going to, Donna's father's going to see his daughter's condition. And his first thing is getting his daughter help. So he jumps into the car and races to the nearest hospital. But doctors attempted to save her life, but she would die from her injuries. And she would become the first murder victim of the son of Sam. Jody survived her gunshot wound to her leg and would later describe the shooter as around 5 foot 8, weighing roughly 200 pounds, and he had short, dark, curly hair. And when questioned, Donna's father would state that he also saw the shooter earlier in the evening as he was parked just down the street while sitting in a yellow compact car. And when police canvassed the neighborhood and and talked to any other potential witnesses, they're going to learn from several neighbors that they all reported seeing the suspect vehicle, this yellow compact car circling the neighborhood in the hours before the shooting. Police were initially at a loss as to the motive for the shooting, and this is based on the fact it was an ambush style of attack. So they thought the murder may have been done as part of like an assassination for the mob, but that the hitman had targeted either the wrong person or the wrong vehicle. And they would have no idea that this was the first of many of these attacks that would be attributed to the son of Sam. And really for investigators, you're talking about New York City, and we'll mention a couple of times. Whether it's New York City or any of the boroughs or outerlying cities, this is the late 70s. A city that size is going to have a lot of crime, is going to have a lot of homicides just by the sheer number of people that are living there. And and we talked about it in the definition for a serial killer. You know, you have to have two or more unlawful killings. So at this point, all they know is that they have this homicide, and they can't really determine a motive for it. And there was no robbery, there was no sexual assault. It was this ambush-style attack on these two women. It just it didn't fit any anything other than as they thought it's possible that somebody one of these two women would have been targeted but they just didn't know why or that it was a mistake then on October 23rd 1976 in a neighborhood in Flushing Queens a similar attack occurred 20 year old Carl De Niro a security guard and 18 year old Rosemary Keenan a college student were in a parked car when suddenly shots rang out and the car windows seemed to explode Carl was due to start a four-year enlistment with the Air Force very soon, and he had been out drinking with friends and was offered a ride home from Rosemary, a woman he knew from college. They were sitting in the car talking when the ambush occurred. Rosemary smartly started the car and drove away quickly. The sound of the glass breaking had muffled the sound of the gunshots, so at first they weren't sure what had happened, but soon Carl realized he had been shot in the head. They rushed to a hospital and Rosemary was treated for minor lacerations from the glass and Carl needed surgery to put a metal plate in his head where his skull had been damaged but he would survive the attack. A forensic examination of the car yielded multiple 44 caliber bullets but they were too damaged to be used to trace back to a specific weapon. Carl had shoulder length brunette hair and police believe the shooter thought that because of his hair and the fact that that he was in the passenger seat of the car, the shooter may have targeted him him thinking he was a female. The case was not initially recognized as being similar to the July attack, because they occurred in two different precincts in New York. There were also several differences, such as the attacker striking while the victim sat in the car, as opposed to waiting for the door to open, and because it was an ambush, the victims never saw their attacker to provide a description would put a similar looking attacker at both scenes so we've got you know now these two different different attacks and I understand there are very uh, similar circumstances in these attacks but there's also a lot of different circumstances and again we talked about how big New York City is that just because two ambush style shootings occur in this city, it's it's not like it's a town of 300 people where suddenly police are going to be alarmed. This is a, a different precinct, a different area of New York City, and there are enough differences in the fact that in the first one, there's an appearance of him waiting for the door to open, and in this one, you had, they're just sitting in the car talking at the time of the attack, so that plus the fact that Again, they actually, I think, mentioned they thought it was like somebody threw rocks at their car or rocks through the window or something like that, because if you're sitting inside a car and somebody fires a gun, the bullet is traveling so fast, as is the the speed of the sound and the, the glass breaking, it's all kind of occurring at the same exact time. So they're not attributing the sound of a gunshot they're just all they're hearing while they're sitting inside the the car is this glass breaking so they didn't even know right away that they they had been shot and it wasn't until they get to the hospital and find out that carl's been hit you know shot in the head that they realized it was even a shooting and they're not looking of course for um, a shooter or a suspect in this case so it's going to kind of slip through the cracks again that Now we have two separate crimes, and they're not connected. But just one month later on November 27, 1976, 16-year-old Donna Damasi and 18-year-old Joanne Lomino walked home from a movie. It was just after midnight, and the two high school students were sitting on Joanne's porch when they were approached by a younger male wearing military fatigues. He had blonde hair and a high-pitched voice. He started to ask, can you tell me how to get, but before he finished his sentence, he pulled out a revolver and began shooting. Each woman was hit once by a bullet and the suspect continued firing as he ran away. The final bullet struck the building and missed the women. Donna had been shot in the neck, but luckily the wound was minor. Joanne had turned and the bullet hit her back, shattering her spine and rendering her a paraplegic the rest of her life. Police still were not able to link all three crimes. Most of the recovered bullets were in such bad shape that they could not be ballistically compared. The attacks had happened in different precincts in one of the largest cities in the world, and the attack pattern was slightly to very different in each attack. Uh, Two involved cars, one involved two victims sitting on a porch, and the attacker in this last case was described as blonde haired, and the attacker in the original was described as having dark hair. And the victims never saw the attacker in the second shooting and we talk about the bullets being in bad shape it's not something that we've really talked about on here but when a bullet is fired it it, it depends on the metal makeup of that bullet itself Uh, there's a ton of different types of bullets made and they all have different purposes but Depending on the size and and how the bullet is actually designed It's also going to depend on what it hits, but some bullets are designed to actually fragment Some are designed to kind of peel back on Themselves and this is for various reasons and involved including doing more damage to the human body but these can also make bullets somewhat fragile if they're gonna hit something like stone or brick or concrete or whatever it might be and what you often end up with if you don't have a bullet that's hitting and stopping in some type of a soft surface you end up with a bullet that's very mashed and it looks just like a clump of metal and since this is a revolver that he's using he's not leaving shell casings behind because they're staying in the cylinder of the revolver. So all police have at this point is bullets. So there's gonna be no extractor marks because there's no casings. There's gonna be no uh, hammer marks on the primer because there's no uh, casings left behind. So literally all they have is bullets. And we also haven't talked about bullets, when they travel through a barrel of a gun, if a barrel has what's called rifling, rifling are grooves cut into the metal on the inside of the barrel that cause the bullet to spin as it comes out of the barrel because a spinning bullet is a more accurate bullet as it travels through the air it cuts through the air better Um, think of it like a tornado i guess that's spinning sideways as it moves through the air it just cuts a better path through the air makes the bullet more accurate but as the bullet is traveling through the barrel, it's actually, the way it gains the spin is by basically being turned by these metal uh, grooves that the rifling, and it will actually leave marks on that bullet, and these marks can actually be compared and, and oftentimes identified to the barrel of a gun that's used to fire a bullet. But in order to have that, you have to have intact bullets or mostly intact bullets. And what police are getting in these three shootings is some pretty mangled bullets that are not able to be compared to each other. So yes, they're able to say that they're .44 caliber bullets, but they're not able to say that they came from the same gun. And so while they're starting to think something's not quite right here, they don't have proof of it yet. In January of 1977, the attacks continued when at just after midnight, 1240 AM, on the 30th, 26 year old Christine Fround, a secretary, and her fiance, 30-year-old John Deal, a bartender, were sitting in their car after watching a movie. They had parked by a railroad station in Queens and were getting ready to drive to a nightclub when suddenly two gunshots broke the silence of the night and bullets penetrated the car's windshield. Both shots had hit Christine in the head, and John ran from the car for help nearby homeowners had called the police after hearing the gunshots. There would would be complaints that it took the police over 15 minutes to get to the scene, an incredibly long amount of time in a shooting situation. And while police would later say a patrol car arrived two minutes after radio traffic was aired, it did take over 10 minutes for an available operator due to the fact it was a busy Saturday night into Sunday morning, and Christine succumbed to her injuries a few hours later at a nearby hospital. Police could no longer treat these as separate incidents and considered this shooting and the previous ambush-style attacks related. All the shootings used 44 caliber bullets and the shooter appeared to target long-haired brunette women sitting in vehicles with either another woman or a man, or in the case of Donna and Joanne, he shot them while they were sitting on a porch. The backgrounds and victimology of each victim was looked into and no common links were found. Police began to think they had a psychopath on the loose who was targeting attractive and vulnerable young women. In roughly the same area of Queens on March 8th around 7.30 p.m., a 19-year-old Columbia University student named Virginia Voskerichian was on her way home when she ran into the shooter. She tried to protect herself from the gunshot he took by using her textbooks as a shield, but she was ultimately shot once in the head and instantly killed. Virginia was an extremely intelligent and hardworking woman who had fled communist Bulgaria with her family during the late 1950s. The killer was confident enough to walk past an eyewitness to the murder and say, hi mister, before continuing to walk away from the scene. Berkowitz would later break into a run and a nearby patrol car saw the suspicious man running and was about to stop out with them when they heard the radio call for a woman shot and instead raced to the scene of the shooting. Virginia's murder hit a lot of the veteran officers working the task force hard. Her youth, the senseless nature of the murder, and their inability to catch the man responsible, despite some close calls, was weighing heavily on them. Despite many of them being veteran detectives and officers, it was said that many of them had a hard time looking at Virginia's body at the scene. And we'll just cover real quick here. uh, This last shooting... uh, there's a couple things to take from it is the the nature of the shooter to be so confident to say hi mister to an eyewitness to the murder and that's something you don't see every day this other thing that you that we have here with this patrol car they're driving by and they see who's eventually going to be identified later as Berkowitz running down the sidewalk. And this is 7 30 at night. I think there was one case and it might have been this where the eyewitness described his wearing like a leisure suit. So it's not like, you know, he's out for a run. It's not like he's even looks like he should be jogging or anything like that. So as police officers you're trained to kind of look for things that don't look right. And the difficult part about this is they're about to stop out with them, which they maybe then would have identified him. And this is also January in New York, so I don't know if they were driving around with their windows down where they might not have heard the gunshot. I, Having worked all my years in Minnesota, there's definitely a difference between working in the summer and working in the winter you can't really drive around with your windows down when it's negative 10 degrees out but when it's you know a nice summer night at 65 or 70 degrees driving around with the with the windows down you could definitely hear a lot more and it sounds like these officers are probably close enough they would have heard these gunshots and maybe you know they go to stop out this guy or they're driving down there they hear these gunshots and they see this guy running away it's a different story but with the windows up and you don't hear the gunshots you see this guy running think maybe we should stop out and talk with them and then you hear we've got a female down possible gunshot you forget all about that guy and now you're driving quickly to the scene to see if you can save her life and this is very similar to how they almost caught the zodiac uh, if you're familiar with that case at all a couple of San Francisco officers stopped out with what was believed to be the zodiac uh, after he shot taxi driver Um, Paul Stein, and it would later be determined that the dispatcher had aired incorrect information, saying the suspect was a black male, and in that case, the two officers saw this white male leaving the scene of this this shooting, and let him go. And to this day, many people will say, you know, we probably know who the Zodiac is. This. Uh, today, if those officers had stopped out, if that mistake had been made, and and I'm sure the officers in this case were also kicking themselves after they learned from the eyewitness that the guy they saw running away was the shooter. And two days later, NYPD held a press conference in which they stated the same bullets were used to kill Donna Loria and Virginia Vascareccia, and remember, I talked about if you get the case where it's, it's the person's shot and it, it's shot in a way that the bullet isn't destroyed, um, you're going to have the ability to compare those bullets because of the rifling, and it sounds like that's the case. At least they had enough remaining bullets to do a comparison between the two. And the police would say the ballistic testing showed these bullets came from the same 44 Bulldog revolver, and this was likely a desperation move by the department in an effort to either scare the suspect into stopping his acts of violence and or hope that someone knew someone who had this specific gun and they would be named as a suspect. And to further the desperation of this act, it would later be proven to not be fully accurate as they had some evidence to point to the same gun being used but did not have definitive evidence. And when I read stuff like this in the source material, I it makes me question i think they were fairly confident that the gun used in both cases was this 44 caliber bulldog revolver and when i mentioned rifling in these barrels every model i should say of gun can be rifled differently um, there can be different rifling patterns i should say but a manufacturer the same model of their gun is always going to be rifled the same way for the most part if it's a a standard barrel so they might be able to say yes both women were killed with this 44 bulldog revolver based on the rifling we have on these bullets but to go and say that it came from the same bulldog revolver makes me believe they had some right filling characteristics because again even though the rifling can be the same you can actually get individual characteristics if the bullets are intact enough you can actually look at different things that happen because microscopic changes within that rifling will be similar between two bullets fired from the same gun so they may have said that and again it might have been just out of desperation it might have been to try to get this guy to stop like hey we've we've proven you've done these two don't do any more or we're gonna catch you type of a thing. What did happen though was the press conference propelled this story into a national and an international sensation with newspapers all over the world running stories about a killer loose in New York, and, and this is where he was given the moniker, the 44 caliber killer, and that was based off of this press conference. Now about a month later, Sam Carr, who his name's gonna come up often in this case, who's Berkowitz's upstairs neighbor, received a strange letter on April 10th complaining about his dog Harvey's barking. And normally something like that probably wouldn't come up in this a story with all this homicide and other true crime, that kind of stuff, but it is going to be important as we go along here. And on April 17th, around 3 a.m., Berkowitz returned to the same area as his first shooting and ambushed another car. Sitting in that car was 20-year-old Alexander Assau, a tow truck driver, and 18-year-old Valentina Suriani, a college student. In this instance, another car pulled up next to them with its window down, and the driver shot into the car several times. The shooting occurred only blocks from the murder of Donna Loria, and residents were quick to call 911 after hearing four gunshots in the quiet of the night. Police found Valentina dead in the driver's seat of the car with a gunshot to the head. Alexander had been hit twice in the head and was still alive, but died shortly after at the hospital. Police would immediately link this to the other shootings due to the geography and the bullets recovered. On this same day, which was April 17th, Berkowitz would be stopped by police in the area. They don't identify him as the killer, but he is issued a citation for driving without insurance. And while searching the crime scene, police find a handwritten letter addressed to NYPD Captain Joseph Borelli. The letter was written in mostly capital letters with some lowercase letters mixed in, and the letter reads as follows. I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman I am not. But I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats our family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kills, commands Father Sam. Behind our house, some rest. Mostly young, raped and slaughtered. Their blood drained, just bones now. Pap Sam keeps me locked in the attic too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police, shoot me first, shoot to kill, or else keep out of my way or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has too many heart attacks. Oog me hoot, it hurts sonny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in Our Lady's house. But I'll see her soon. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game, tasty meat. The women of Queens are prettiest of all. It must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt my life. Blood for Papa, Mr. Borelli, sir, I don't want to kill any more. No, sir, no more, but I must honor thy father. I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to Yahoo's. To the people of Queens, I love you, and I want to wish you, all of you, a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. Please, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back, I'll be back, to be interpreted as bang bang, bang bang, ugh. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. So that was a word-for-word reading of the letter. I think it's important that you hear exactly what was going on in there, and that's because he identifies himself as the Son of Sam. The killer's nickname was going to be changed from the forty-four caliber to the Son of Sam. And Berkowitz had not been identified as the son of Sam's, so investigators and psychologists looked very closely at the note, and they made several inferences. As for the part that Reed read, Ug me hoot it hurts sunny boy, they felt as if the killer might have had some Scottish English in his past. They also believed his father might have died by heart attack, and he blamed people in the medical field, which is why his first two victims were an EMT and a nurse. And psychologists stated the writer of the letter was neurotic and likely had paranoid schizophrenia and believed himself to be possessed by demons. But he wasn't done writing letters yet. Two days later on April 19th, his upstairs neighbor Sam Carr received a letter. Sam Carr's letter read, I have asked you kindly to stop that dog from howling all day long, yet he continues to do so. I pleaded with you. I told you how this is destroying my family. We have no peace, no rest. Now I know what kind of a person you are and what kind of a family you are. You are cruel and inconsiderate. You have no love for any other human beings. You're selfish, Mr. Carr. My life is destroyed now. I have nothing to lose anymore. I can see that there shall be no peace in my life or my family's life until I end yours and he would sign these letters with the terminology a citizen and Sam Carr because of that last line about ending his family's lives would take the letter to the NYPD but no link is made at this time to Berkowitz and now around this time a task force is assembled called Operation Omega and it consists of 75 detectives and 225 uniformed officers and to be assigned to this task force was considered a great honor and there was a immense pressure on the task force to catch the killer and one of the members of the task force was detective redmond keenan and he was the father of rosemary keenan who was uh, one of the victims of the son of sam she'd survived her attack with minor injuries but uh, The friend that she was with, uh, Carl, was the guy who had to have the metal plate in his skull from the gunshot wound. And the task force worked 24-7 to follow up on tips and leads and do stakeouts and extra patrols. The entire city was living in fear at this point, and the members of this task force would often sleep on cots at the headquarters. Many officers and detectives went weeks without seeing their families during this time. They did receive thousands of tips and tried to follow up on all the 44 caliber gun purchases and registrations, but Berkowitz had purchased the gun from an army buddy in Texas, so unknowingly the police were wasting their time with that avenue of investigation. On April 29th, Sam Carr hears a single gunshot in the area of his backyard and goes outside to find his dog bleeding from a gunshot wound. A man was seen running away, and Carr believed it to be David Berkowitz, but he couldn't prove it. Thankfully, the dog survives the attack. And this is where we'll take a break. Um, Part 3 is actually pretty lengthy. It's going to cover a a few more of the uh, crimes that Berkowitz is going to commit and then eventually his capture and and whatnot in in Part 3, but uh, I had to break up these two episodes because I realized Part 3 was going to be a very, very long one if I... Uh, didn't break them up and so if we go back the hard thing to do to capture in these episodes sometimes is one is the time period itself and you know this is the late 70s Uh, we'll talk about some of the other stuff that's going on in part three but It's said that like women in New York City at this time, a lot of them that were brunette, either dyed their hair or cut their hair because it seemed like his, he was targeting these long-haired brunette women. And we'll actually mention in part three, there's a couple of his victims that were talking about the Son of Sam right before they were attacked. So this is something that's it's heavy in the media. Uh, There's news stories every night about the hunt for the the son of Sam. We talked about this task force with all of these detectives and officers that are basically living in precincts that are investigating or the headquarters for this task force. So it's hard to capture it, but this is basically this summer of... I'm sorry, this spring and summer of 1977 are going to be kind of a reign of terror. And we'll talk about how that also kind of fueled uh, David Berkowitz in this next episode. And then finally, we have these letters. And I, I read the letters, but we didn't really break them down after each one. You really have to go online and see these letters because it's, it's very unique uh, writing in the the letter that he wrote or left at the crime scene for the police to find. Uh, the, the, the letter styling itself, just the overall, I mean, it's, it's obvious that the thought process of whoever was writing it was all over the place, but there might be a design to that, I guess, to a certain degree. And we'll discuss that more in the next episode, but These letters, anytime you have letters to the police and the media that we see in the Zodiac case, and the the Zodiac case was pretty heavy in the news. It would be about six, seven years before this occurred. And so I never saw a correlation. I guess nobody that I know of asked David Berkowitz if that's kind of what prompted him to start writing letters to the police and the media. But clearly it had the desired effect where it created this media frenzy in regards to what he was doing and and that in turn uh kinda of gripped the whole city in fear. So But we'll discuss more of that in part three, uh, coming at you in, in the next episode, and that'll be the final final part of this series on the Son of Sam. So Thank you everyone for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes. Feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True blue Crime Productions. That's it for today. Thank you guys for listening. Have a great day. Goodbye.